Exploring the intersection of liberty and character. Welcome to the Reed Hour with Lawrence W. Reed. Welcome to the Reed Hour on this first day of October 2019. This is Lawrence Reed, your host. And as is our custom in this first segment, we'll be talking uh, with my producer, Brian Hyde, about our Hero of the Week. Hey, Brian, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much. And, and I have to hand it to you once again, Larry. Um, you pick heroes that uh, I really am, am happy to learn about, but this is a guy I've never heard of before. Tell me about John Patrick. Yes, John Patrick, P-A-T-R-I-C, with no K at the end. He described himself as a hobo and a screwball. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) And he lived out of a car. I think he was both, but also a hero. He lived out of a car for years at a time. Uh, He attended universities in seven states, from California to Minnesota, and was expelled from three of them in (laughs) Oregon, Michigan, and Texas. He ran for office uh, at least 15 times as a Republican, as often as a Democrat. And he paid his campaign filing fees with loose change. Uh, Now, you're probably wondering, well, that doesn't make him a hero, but I like him because uh, of some things that he wrote in later life, as well as this independent streak that he had. He was a very uncommon uh, kind of guy who just lived his life as he wanted to. He never heard a flea um, and was a little quirky, but um, uh, he had his head on straight in so many ways. Now, in the essay that you sent me, which was published at fee.org, and I guess which is also a chapter in your book, Real Heroes, you, yes. po- you point out that uh, you don't share the view that the common man should be put on a pedestal. Tell me about that. Yeah. You know, I use the story of John Patrick in my book and in that essay uh, published at fee.org to illustrate how um, – uh, the, w- what we should really be uh, rejoicing about is not commonality among humans, but our uncommonness. Uh, what makes John Patrick so fascinating is his uncommonness. Uh, what made him uh, s- such a uh, memorable figure is the fact that he was different from anybody else. There was a, a Turkish immigrant to the United States way back in the 1920s uh, who wrote a short piece called My Creed. It's too long, uh, even though it's short, it's too long to read on the air. But I like what he said when he says, um, I do not choose to be a common man. It is my right to be uncommon if I can. I seek opportunity, not security. I do not wish to be a kept citizen, humbled and dulled by having the state look after me. Well, you know, so often uh, here in America, we hear these uh, praises sung to the common man. But think about it. You you wouldn't tell your children as they're growing up anything like, uh, hey, Johnny, work really hard and maybe someday you can be common. I mean, you, you want your children to grow up and be different, be better, be the best they can be, stand out from the crowd, speak truth to power, have courage, uh, not just to blend in and be another ant in the colony. Well, and this brings to mind something that uh, when, I, when I've heard, for instance, there's been a lot of push for gun control lately. And one of the things that I hear politicians say, the common person does not need such and such a gun. <laughs> and, and my thought was, well, I'm not a common person. I know my rights. Wouldn't that make me uncommon? 
Hey, that's a great way to put it. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, today, uh, if you really know your rights, and I know you do, uh, Brian, uh, that probably does make you sadly uncommon. Uh, I don't know that Americans today are schooled as they once were in what their rights are as citizens and as human beings. But uh, in any event, it's the uncommon among us that are the most interesting, the most fascinating, and, and often the ones who really make the world go round. Here, here. Now, I understand that uh, you have some background on uh, John Patrick and his early travels for National Geographic. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, you know, he, he uh, was a free spirit uh, from a very early age. He actually ran away from high school for a few months, uh, ran away from, from home, I should say, when he was in high school. Uh, he, he later came back after, uh, as he put it, hoboing uh, his way from Seattle to Mexico. <laughs> he did that uh, on trains and was very complimentary of the guys uh, who worked the trains. They, they uh, seemed to like him and uh, gave him free lunches and let him ride the train. But when he got back uh, to Snohomish, Washington, where he was born, he finished high school and uh, ended up as the valedictorian of his class and the president of the senior class. That was the only election that he actually ever won, even though <laughs> he would ultimately run for quite a few. Uh, so he had the, the travel bar. Uh, for sure. And after high school, he began a kind of uh, peripatetic life, uh, traveling back and forth across the country, living out of a Lincoln sedan, 1927 Lincoln sedan, he picked it up for a good price and drove it from coast to coast. Uh, he started writing for National Geographic um, as well. And his best known article appeared there in March of 1937. It's worth a read has a lot of pictures with it that he personally took. This is, uh, you know, just two years before World War II would begin. Benito Mussolini's in power. And Patrick writes this article about uh, uh, the atmosphere in Rome in the mid-30s uh, being one of uh, egocentrism focused on Il Duce, uh, Benito Mussolini. Uh, and it gave readers a kind of chilling specter of, of a very egocentric uh, dictatorship. That would, uh, a couple of years later, be part of uh, the Axis powers that uh, led us into World War II. So he developed a following uh, with National Geographic, and then he also wrote uh, for Reader's Digest. In fact, he wrote a piece for Reader's Digest during World War II that was critical of labor unions in the shipbuilding industry. And uh, the reason was he, he pointed to corruption and feather bedding uh, in shipbuilding. And he was called to testify before Congress about it. And that's where he said the unions were crippling productivity at a time when the country needed all hands on deck uh, to win World War II. So by the time of World War II, uh, he certainly had a national reputation uh, as, as an odd guy, but uh, a good writer. Tell me about his book, Yankee Hobo in the Orient. That's a pretty captivating title. Yeah, it is. It was based upon his uh, two years of travel around Korea and Japan in the mid-30s. It came out in 1943. Uh, it uh, uh, became a bestseller. In fact, uh, Reader's Digest did a condensation of it. So did uh, World Digest over in Britain. When you add up the hard copies, the paperback copies of the book itself, and the readership of the condensed versions in places like Reader's Digest, uh, it sold some 12 million copies worldwide. I mean, it was really a, a, a big seller. 
And uh, it acquainted Americans uh, in the uh, mid-40s with the nature and the background, the culture and the history of uh, Japan and, the, and uh, Korea. And uh, I found it a fascinating read myself. In fact, uh, uh, he's talking about in the uh, early part in the book before he uh, went to Japan, actually. He was on his way to, uh, to port in Seattle to board the vessel to go to Japan. And uh, to save hotel bills, he was sleeping in the front seat of his car each night until he got his way to uh, Seattle uh, en route to Japan. And uh, the police kept hauling him in because he was uh, sleeping in his car. Uh, Anyway, I wish I had more time to tell you about that. But John Patrick was a fascinating guy. His book is still worth reading. Um, And I guess we do have two minutes. So why don't I tell you something he said about those instances where the police would uh, uh, grab him and and bring him into uh, jail for the night just because he had been sleeping in his car. Uh, He said, why is it that when otherwise decent men come to represent the majesty of law and government, they can become so discourteous, so arrogant, so cruel? It's no wonder to me that petty offenders and even those who have committed no real offense, whatever, sometimes become antisocial after a few experiences with the law. (laughs) And then he goes on to say, could it be that police, if police had less power and if there were fewer laws and regulations, people and police would both become more decent? Um, Anyway, interesting observation. Uh, Lots of cops are are wonderful people, but he just had one bad experience with them after another and uh, and for no more crime than simply sleeping in his car. Now, I understand that his philosophy uh, philosophy about freedom and the role of government is something that you share. Where's the commonality? Uh, Yeah, I think uh, he, he was increasingly an advocate for minimal government. And uh, in my article about him, I quote him in several cases where he talks about the importance of keeping government at bay, keeping it small, uh, keeping an eye on it. And when he ran for office in later years, almost every year for about 20 years, he ran for office. uh, He was always needling the politicians uh, because he felt in many cases uh, they were corrupt or they were uh, regulating people when they really didn't need to. Uh, And that's one of the reasons I think he's a hero. He spoke truth to power, needled the people in power and uh, gave them a hard time when they deserved it. And and you mentioned in your article, he actually he hung out with Rose Wilder Lane for at least some time. Yeah, Rose Wilder Lane was a great advocate of individual liberty and minimal government. And the two of them, John Patrick and Rose Wilder Lane, uh, were friends and did some of this uh, travel around the country together in his car. So, uh, yeah, a fascinating figure, an uncommon guy, never heard a flea and spoke truth to power. Welcome back to The Read Hour, everyone. This is Lawrence Reed, your host. I'm with the Foundation for Economic Education, FEE, F-E-E dot org. And today, for the uh, balance of the show, three segments, I'll be talking to Tyler Brandt. Tyler Brandt is an, an associate editor at FEE. He's a graduate of the University of Wisconsin at Madison with a B.A. degree in political science. In college, Tyler was a a campus ambassador for the Foundation for Economic Education, also president of his campus, Young Americans for Liberty chapter, 
and a research intern at the John K. MacGyver Institute for Public Policy. Welcome to the Read Hour, Tyler. Thanks for having me, Larry. Super excited to be on today. Uh, glad to have you. And uh, you have become a very valuable employee at, uh, at FEE, and your editorial talents, I think, are going to take you far. I like to spotlight uh, newcomers, young writers uh, with lots of promise and on this show, and you're a great example of that. In the couple of years that you've been at FEE, you've written some great articles. The most recent was uh, 10 Things You Might Not Know About FEE Founder Leonard Reed. No relation to me. Leonard Reed spelled his name R-E-A-D. But you really brought out some fascinating things about this remarkable man. I actually knew Leonard in the last uh, six or seven years of his life, but I uh, found a lot of things in your article that I either didn't know or had forgotten. Uh, let's start by telling our listeners who might be hearing about him for the first time just who Leonard Reed was. Yeah, sure yeah, thing, sure. Larry. And I completely agree that he was just an absolutely fascinating man. And most of these tidbits I got in my article were from reading um, Leonard E. Reed, The Philosopher of Freedom. And that was a biography written by Mary Senholtz, who was actually wife of the late Hans Senholtz, who was um, president of FIA at one point. So yeah, for yep. those who don't know Leonard Reed, he started the Foundation for Economic Education in uh, 1946. And uh, over his the course of his life, he authored 30 books and made it his life's work to revitalize the spirit of liberty and individual responsibility um, after the passage of the New Deal and the rise of FDR. And a little bit about his personal life is he just grew up on a farm outside of Hubbardston, Michigan. And I know you've been in Michigan a while, so that's a cool connection, too. Yeah. Um, he worked on a farm with his parents for many of his years growing up and eventually started his own produce company and worked for the Chamber of Commerce. All of that starting before he started the Foundation for Economic Education. And that was in 1946 after uh, World War II had ended. And a lot of people at that time thought, wow, you know, big government seems to work. It uh, mobilized uh, people and economies, and we won this uh, uh, major war. So let's have it plan all kinds of things in our lives. And at that time, Leonard Reed said, wait a minute, that's uh, uh, fraught with danger. So he decided, you know, we've got to do something about uh, educating people so they understand that that's not the way to go. And that's why we have the Foundation for Economic Education today. Indeed. He died in 1983, so he's been gone, what is that, 36 years. But uh, before we're done today, I, I know I want to ask you uh, ways in which you think uh, his legacy continues to have an impact at fee and on the larger liberty movement. But uh, your first of 10 interesting facts in your article uh, about Leonard concerned his grandfather. What was that about? Yeah, so something I found really interesting was that he had a grandfather named Edward C. Reed, who actually fought in the Civil War under General William T. Sherman. Uh, a lot of the listeners and just um, people who are interested in U.S. history might know him for his infamous March to the Sea. Yeah, I'm sitting here in Noonan, Georgia. And of course, you're in Atlanta, and there are not many things named for Sherman down here. <laughs> yep, you, you can understand why, huh? <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, so also his grandpa, Edward Reed, fought in the Battle of Lookout Mountain under the command of General Joseph Hooker and actually helped force a Confederate retreat. Um, those who um, study history, such as yourself, might know that the Battle of Lookout Mountain was a really decisive battle, ranking in importance with um, battles like Gettysburg. 
And uh, as a kid, Leonard loved these stories from his grandpa and actually took away a lot of importance to his own life. So this is just a funny little story that he took away from his grandpa's battle in the Civil War. Leonard said, when I am accused of being in cloud nine, the fact must not be overlooked that there is something to it. Had it not been for the clouds on Lookout Mountain, Grandpappy would have probably been shot. And had this happened, my pop would have not been born. It is reasonable to conclude from this evidence that Leonard E. Reed would not exist. Ergo, a cloud is responsible for me. <laughs> that was uh, so typical of Leonard. He always wrote in a, in a whimsical way. Uh, he was able to communicate with people on a, on a, a level that uh, drew you in, no matter what it was that he was uh, talking about. Right. And, you know, it's interesting, too, when you think of it, that uh, that I, I knew Leonard, uh, and so I knew a guy who was living and could say that his grandfather, just two generations uh, before, uh, participated in the Civil War. It reminds you, again, of how young this country is and how not so long ago ago we had uh, such calamitous uh, things as, as a great Civil War. Absolutely. Uh, you, you pointed out in your article, uh, Tyler, that Leonard's father died uh, when Leonard was only 11, but that didn't seem to slow Leonard down at all. He, he kind of had an entrepreneurial uh, streak rather early, didn't he? Yeah, he sure did. And just a short preference about his father's death, because it just goes to show you how poor the medicine was growing up on a farm uh, the time he did. His dad actually had a pimple on his face, and he popped it prematurely. And I guess the pimple was infected, and it caused septicemia, which mm. is poisoning of his blood. Mm -hmm. And that's how his father actually passed away, and Leonard was only 11. Wow. Um, and yeah, that did, that would be quickly treated, uh, you know, in a day. Yeah, you could just run down to the urgent clinic, pay a hundred dollars, and get medicine for it right away. So, just goes to show how uh, good things have gotten. Yeah, I know Leonard liked uh, Calvin Coolidge a lot, and uh, Calvin Coolidge lost his son while uh, they were living in the White House uh, to septicemia. It uh, was prompted by a minor injury on the tennis court at the at the White House tennis courts. But it, uh, uh, that injury became infected, septicemia set in, and uh, a week or two later, uh, Coolidge's son was dead. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's great that uh, we've made such progress. And to think that people could die so easily of that uh, uh, not so long ago is uh, really kind of shocking. Yeah, absolutely. And another fascinating part is that even going through that at the age of 11, it didn't slow him down at all. So um, besides like helping up his mother around the farm and then opening up a bed and breakfast, Leonard Reed did a lot of other things to contribute to the family. So he had a, a lot of entrepreneurial ventures. Uh, one of them, he would set muskrat traps around swamps and lakes around his town and sell the pelts for about 25 cents. Ooh. Him and his friend would pop large amounts of popcorn and then they would sell it to the people in the town at public gatherings. <laughs> um, he also tried growing mushrooms in a friend's cellar, but I don't think that turned out. And then a little bit later in his life, as a young adult, he actually started a produce company selling eggs, dairy, and produce to colleges, supermarkets, and uh, others from the farm. Wow. So he knew business firsthand. That's uh, probably a big reason why later he uh, uh, showed such a great understanding of, of, of how to create wealth, how to manage an enterprise, and uh, the importance of making the case that people should be free to do those things. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just it's really cool to hear these stories of these people who grow up in the time he did and like just how life was so much more, I think, entrepreneurial by nature. 
because you grow up nowadays and what you do is you go get a job at McDonald's, you work hourly. But before all of those um, businesses were able to hire people like that, you kind of just had to make your own. So I think there's certainly something about the time he grew up in as well that allowed him to foster those um, merits. I think so. We have about 30 seconds left before the first break. Tyler, can you say something about how you first uh, learned of Leonard Reed or maybe the first thing by him that you read? Yeah, the first thing I I read by Leonard Reed was I Pencil, as with a lot of other people. And I was a a college student, probably a sophomore, and I started reading fee.org articles online. And um, iPencil really just opened up my mind to viewing the world and uh, how the economy works in spontaneous order and just viewing the beauty of mutual interdependence. Ah, let's take up uh, at that point uh, when we come back after the break with Tyler Branch. Thanks, Tyler. We'll be back just after this commercial break. Credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back, everyone, to the Reed Hour on the Loving Liberty Network. This is your host, Lawrence Reed, from the Foundation for Economic Education. I'm talking today to a colleague from FEE, Tyler Brandt, who is associate editor at FEE. Young guy in his, what, mid-20s, right, uh, Tyler? 23. 23. Well, you've already established yourself as uh, a great editor and writer. Uh, You were a campus leader when you were at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And we were talking before the break about how you first came across the name Leonard Reed, the man who founded the Foundation for Economic Education. And it was uh, by reading his famous essay, I Pencil. Maybe you could uh, tell us more about the message of I Pencil and how you reacted to it when you first read it. Yeah, the message of iPencil kind of just opened up my worldview and um, helped me see the nature of economics in such a, a beautiful and spontaneous way. Because I got, I think there's a, this impression before you learn what economics actually is, that it's just stuff like personal finance and numbers and banking and stocks and stuff like that. But when I read iPencil, it got me to realize that all of the products around me, such as pencils, are the result of mutual cooperation and self-interest of just millions of individuals working around the whole world who all collaborate together in some crazy way to provide to you what you buy on the market. And not even just pencils, but seeing like everything in my room around me, it's insane to think that pillowcases, a blanket, my guitar, those are the function of millions of people who just want to better their lives. And because of that, I get these cool products for cheap. And it's just crazy to view the world that way. And there's no mastermind at the top, no dictator who uh, points at people and says, you know, you do this, you do that, so that we can make a pencil or a guitar or any of those things. It all happens through uh, the profit motive, uh, through incentive, through markets and uh, uh, you know, a marvelous mechanism that we, we take for granted. But that was the message of iPencil. Yeah, it's glorious. I encourage people to uh, visit the fee website and type in I, comma, pencil in the search engine. So you can read that essay. You can do it in about an hour, maybe less. 
And uh, it really has had an enormous impact on a lot of people since it first came out in 1958. But we're talking uh, with Tyler Brandt today about Leonard Reed, the author of that great essay. Tyler wrote a recent article at fee.org called 10 Things You Might Not Know About Fee Founder Leonard Reed. How about his service during World War I, uh, Tyler? It's, it really is quite remarkable. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Leonard Reed wanted to serve in World War I as uh, an airplane pilot initially. And um, when he first enlisted in the war, he was told that only college graduates were allowed to be airplane pilots. And he was so upset that he went to his commanding officer and made a plea on why he should be a pilot. And the commanding officer was so persuaded that he allowed Leonard Reed to pursue pilothood. But when the war took off, it came before his training to be a pilot. And he had an opportunity to go over to France to become a plane mechanic. And he decided to do that and forego being a, uh, a pilot for the time being. Mm. But it's pretty crazy. Usually mechanics and uh, people in positions such as him don't experience combat. And he never did. But even though he didn't experience combat, he still nearly died four times during the war's uh, course. <laughs> so the first time he nearly died is uh, him and his shipmates, about 2,500 people, were sailing over to France across the frigid Atlantic. And uh, I think it was late one night, and Leonard just wanted some fresh air. So he got up from his quarters, and he went onto the deck of his ship to just do some stretching, some light exercise, and get some air. And uh, the Atlantic was really turbulent at that moment, and there was uh, a big wave that hit the ship and knocked it uh, sideways a little bit, and that caused Leonard to slide across the deck to a railing on the side of the ship, and he almost fell over, but he held on to the railing. And uh, as he held on to that railing, a few shipmates noticed him, and they ran over, and they pulled him up for his life. Uh, If he would have fallen at all, there's no way the ship could have stopped uh, and if he did fall, he would have died within minutes because the, the ocean was so cold. Wow. So that was his first uh, harrowing miss of death. Uh, the <laughs> second one was actually the, just the day after that, surprisingly. Leonard Reed was below his quarters, I think, in uh, the bedroom or whatever. And uh, the ship actually got hit by a torpedo. So all of these people on the ship started rushing to the deck and getting on lifeboats some tried jumping on to um, partnerships to uh, go to safety, but they missed and they fell into it, the Atlantic never to be seen again. Mm-hmm. And uh, Leonard Reed actually had specific orders not to abandon the ship at all costs, so he exactly didn't do that. And it turned out that Leonard Reed was left the, the last person on the sinking ship, and he was just waiting for the thing to go down. And he started contemplating his life, thinking about what he's done, when all of a sudden he felt a tap on his shoulder – And um, it was somebody telling him of a lifeboat. So he ran over to the lifeboat, um, descended it, jumped in the lifeboat, and got away from the sinking ship. But then they noticed there was a hole in the lifeboat. And uh, they figured out the hole was actually a missing cork. So they just took a piece of life vest and stuffed it in that hole to save the ship. And then eventually they were rescued by Irish sailors. Oh, my gosh. He really did have a life of adventure from from an early date. So after the war and four occasions when he uh, could have died, uh, he goes into the uh, grocery business. Uh, he later joins the Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce, uh, then meets a guy who was on the Chamber of Commerce board, I, as I recall, a guy named Bill Mullendore, who said, Leonard, you know, uh, it's fine to be pro-business, but you need to see the bigger picture. Uh 
because there are a lot of businesses that use the government to get special favors, and you shouldn't be for that. You should be for a free market, a fair field, and no favors. And that's when he decided, yeah, uh, that's the principled position to take, and that's at the core of uh, what the foundation that he started, the Foundation for Economic Education, uh, is all about. He started mm -hmm. that uh, again in 1946, and you and I both uh, have worked for it uh, for quite some time. Uh, when he started Fee, uh, there wasn't anybody else out there making the case that he was, uh, was there? No, there wasn't. Uh, the Foundation for Economic Education was the first of its kind, especially after World War II passed and everybody was pretty much of the same opinion that uh, big government is, necessarily, is necessary to control the economy to prevent things like the Great Depression. And a large uh, population of the country was for these New Deal programs. And Fee was the first of its kind to actually publish material against the New Deal programs. And I had to imagine how crazy it would it would be to have a battle pretty much for the, let's say, the freedom of the entire world and to have your population of America view it that way. And then to all of a sudden be against government involvement, like yeah. that had to be a pretty revolutionary stance. And yeah, Fee's just, Fee is really incredible for taking that position and not being afraid to publish the stuff that they did. Yeah, I don't remember the year, but it, it was either in the very late 40s or the early 50s when uh, Leonard Reed was actually called before Congress to testify because there were some in Congress who thought that uh, he and this uh, fee were subversive in some way, that they were you know, raising questions about the government and they should be uh, grateful that the government is doing so many good things for people. Uh, it's kind of frightening to think that a guy who was doing nothing more than setting up an organization to teach ideas that this country was founded upon, freedom, free markets, private property, uh, in the early 50s uh, gets called it before Congress as if uh, he was doing something subversive. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly terrifying. And I guess it shows you just how far we've come in terms of the ability to speak on our mind against the government. Yep. And then, of course, some still might say, we'll look at cases like Edward Snowden, that's still not we're still not completely allowed to say everything against our government that we needed to. But even with a point like that, I mean, we've still changed a lot since then. That's right. And uh, here it is, 75 years almost uh, since Leonard founded uh, Fee. And uh, now the organization is very much part of the landscape of uh, organizations promoting liberty. Many of those organizations got their start because of something that he wrote or someone associated with Fee wrote. Um, but he also, uh, although he worked hard for these ideas of liberty and free markets, uh, he also had uh, plenty of fun in his life. He was quite the golfer, wasn't he? Yeah, he sure was. Something uh, really interesting that I read is throughout his golf career, he had five hole-in-ones. That's pretty <laughs> impressive because golf is a tough sport. Yeah, absolutely. And just flexing a little bit myself, I don't play golf, but I play disc golf. So I have nine career hole-in-ones in disc golf. And I just <laughs> wanted to share that with the listeners because Leonard Reed has nothing on me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was also a curler, by the way, you know, those uh, heavy stones that uh, guys throw down a, uh, an icy path and with brooms, a couple other guys will either speed it up or slow it down. Uh, he took me to uh, watch some curling once way back in the late 70s, and uh, I'd never even heard of the sport before. Now it's an Olympic sport. Yeah, here you actually have one of his curling stones. And I think another person who has his second curling stone is Robert Anthony Peters. 
That's right. Yeah, and uh, I very proudly have mine in front of my uh, uh, fireplace. Well, uh, Tyler, we've got to take another break here, but we'll be back with Tyler Brandt from the Foundation for Economic Education after this break. the third and final segment of the Read Hour today on the Loving Liberty Network. My guest is Tyler Brandt, an associate editor at the Foundation for Economic Education, author of many articles on the FEE website, fee.org, including the one we're talking about today, the 10 things or 10 things you might not know about fee founder Leonard Reed. He was no relation to me, spelled his last name R-E-A-D as opposed to mine, which is with two E's. Uh, Tyler, uh, in your article, you made the case that Leonard's core integrity helped to change his political beliefs. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that? And I hope I didn't give too much of it away in the in the last segment. Yeah, you touched on it a little bit before, but yeah, there's still plenty more to elaborate on. Um, So interestingly enough, before Leonard founded Fee and when he worked at the Chamber of Commerce, he was still uh, pro-big government and pro-government involvement in business. And he held this position as manager at the Chamber of Commerce Western Division. I think it was California at the time. Um, And as you said, Bill Mullendore, who was on the board of the Chamber of Commerce? I think so. Yeah, so Bill Mullendore, also uh, a businessman in California, criticized Leonard Reed and the chamber for their support of uh, FDR's New Deal. And Leonard was slightly peeved at Mullendore's criticism and challenged him to a debate to set him straight. And uh, the two debated and argued, and mid-argument, Leonard actually stopped, (laughs) paused, and realized he was wrong. And he admitted that Mullendore was right. And convinced of his error, he set out on a deep inquiry into the world of free market economics and philosophy of liberty and eventually started fee because of it. And just to do something like that, like change your stance mid-debate, mid-argument, mm-hmm. that takes a lot of integrity. And I'm convinced Leonard Reed possessed a whole lot of it. Yeah, and he saw that it was an inconsistency for a person to say uh... – I'm for free enterprise, but then support uh, special government favors for certain businesses. So he put two and two together because he was a man of integrity and character. And uh, he later invited uh, Bill Mullendore, the man who changed his mind uh, and educated him. He put him on the fee board. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) Now, your 10th point in your article uh, was about Leonard's washing machine. And I didn't recall before reading your article about that, uh, anything about that at all. So I think our listeners would love to hear what's the connection between Leonard Reed, founder of Fee, and the washing machine. Yeah, this is like one of the funniest things I read in the biography by Mary Senholtz. And it was just ta- it was like uh, attached to the bottom of this biography, like it didn't matter at all. And I read it and I was like, what the heck? Are you kidding me? So, um Yeah, what most people have never heard is that Leonard Reed may have invented the modern clothes washer, what we know today as a washing machine. 
So uh, Reed was actually reading Popular Mechanics and saw an advert in the back that was posted by a Washington patent attorney who was soliciting inventive thought. And Leonard, being the enterprising young man he was, decided to submit some blueprints for this mechanical washing machine. Uh, so he submitted the blueprints to the attorney, and the attorney wrote Reed back, and he called the blueprints, quote, impractical and useless, end quote. <laughs> so Reed thought that was the end of his invention until two years later as he was walking past a local hardware store and saw his, event, his invention in the store window. <laughs> so it's inferring from this, it's likely that the attorney lied to Reed and submitted the patents anyway without telling him. We don't know that for sure. That's a little bit of suspicion. But it's possible that Leonard Reed may have invented the modern, the modern clothes washer. <laughs> and it would be in character uh, for Leonard not to make a fuss out of it. Uh, to be disappointed probably, but uh, to not make a fuss, he had too many more important things in life to, to uh, promote and advocate, namely liberty uh, for the individual. Yeah, absolutely. Well, here we are um, all these years later, uh, 36 years since Leonard passed away in 1983 at the age of 85. Uh, the Foundation for Economic Education is going strong with about 30 employees. You're one of them. Uh, and uh, I guess I am, too, as president emeritus. But can you say something for our listeners about uh, what you think Leonard's legacy is and how uh, listeners can learn more about that legacy and about Leonard himself? Yeah, because his legacy is so great, it's kind of hard for me to put this in concrete terms. So I'll try to talk in more artistic terms because I think that's the way Leonard Reed would have seen it too. And I think certainly Reed's spirit was one of integrity, humbleness, constant awe and inspiration at the world around him, optimism, and light. And I think that spirit is what he injected into Fee when he started it in 1946. And because of that, Fee has ever since been sharing that message and also sharing free markets, the liberty philosophy, and how um, freedom and individualism leads, leads to a vibrant, peaceful world. And his, leg his legacy lives through Fee and all of the individuals it touches who are convinced of this glory of the free market and the world around them. And um, I kind of see his legacy as just being the continuation of the way he saw the world through Fee and, like I said, the individuals who appreciate and support Fee. You know, when I think of Leonard, um, if, I, if I had to sum him up in some way in his own words, I think uh, two in particular would come readily to mind. It was uh, these words were the title of one of his books. I think uh, at least an article or two carried the same uh, two words, anything peaceful. Uh, and at Fee, we still think of that a lot, don't we? Uh, maybe you could say a few words about why that is so quintessential Leonard Reed. Yeah, and that's just such a, a beautifully short summation about the philosophy of free markets and individualism and whatever you want to say. All we want is a society where anything peaceful goes. That means that's essentially the same thing as saying you have your right to swing your fist uh, where another man's face ends. And it's just saying that the world is so open and boundless and you have the opportunity to go do whatever you want so long as you don't infringe on the liberty and safety and natural rights of other individuals. And instead of saying all that philosophical mumbo jumbo, the slogan, anything peaceful, is just a great way to say it. Yeah. And what a great motto to live your life by. Just leave people alone. Uh, find ways to uh, cooperate with them. 
uh, and not to take their stuff or to hire politicians to push them around. That was really the essence of what Leonard Reed was all about, and it's still the message of the Foundation for Economic Education today. I think he'd be proud of what we've done since uh, he passed away in 1983, don't you, Tyler? Yeah, I completely agree. And the way we're trying to reach the world and reach young people especially and help share to them this message that has been rejected to them by constant public schools and colleges and just thought leaders around the world, how much better we can make um, these people's worldviews and these people's lives if they just um, take the message of self-responsibility and liberty and a peaceful society to heart. Yep. If people go to uh, the FEE website, FEE.org, and just type in Leonard Reed, R-E-A-D, they will find a wealth of material. Uh, I think all of his books are online for free, Uh, articles by the dozens, uh, a speech, I think, uh, in black and white video is even there. Uh, he's just a fascinating man that uh, uh, whose legacy continues to resonate throughout the world. We have about a minute and a half left, uh, Tyler. Maybe you could uh, sum up what Fee does uh, that I think would have Leonard uh, so proud today if he could only see what we're doing. That's a great question, Larry. Um, I think the thing that Leonard Reed would be pro- most proud of to see what we're doing is the fact that we're actually going to high school classrooms and college classrooms and interacting with the students there and sharing his message of iPencil and spontaneous order and a lot of these other concepts and going to these schools and directly talking to the kids about these ideas and just helping them essentially see the light. Um, I mean, we can write articles, we can write books, do whatever we want, but when we're actually on the ground talking with these students, I don't think there's any better of a way to accomplish our goal than to do that. And of that, I think he'd be particularly proud. I'm, I'm sure you're right. Uh, and we're reaching so many more than ever in our history. Uh, tens of thousands of students that we're interacting with, fee speakers are interacting with uh, in any given year. And more than a million unique visitors to the website every single month. Uh, in his day, uh, pre-internet, we had a magazine, but uh, you know, young people don't read hard copy magazines these days. But we have so many more reading what we do by just visiting the website. I think he'd be especially proud of that too. Yeah, it's drastically increased our reach. Yep. Well, Tyler Brandt has been our guest today on the Read Hour on the Loving Liberty Network. He's an associate editor at the Foundation for Economic Education. I encourage our listeners to visit the FEE website. Type in Tyler's last name, B-R-A-N-D-T, and you'll see his recent article, 10 Things You Might Not Know About Fee Founder Leonard Reed. Thanks, Tyler, for being my guest today on the Read Hour. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Larry. It's been a great time. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Brian. Thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.